Article 18 of the Belgic Confession. On the incarnation of the Son of God. And we say there, at the beginning it says, we confess. I just want to point out that at the beginning of Article 1, it says, we all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth. So that's not just for Article 1, but that covers all of the articles. So there's the confession that the mouth makes, but there's the belief that's actually in the heart of the person who hopefully confesses these things. So we confess. We confess, therefore, that God has fulfilled the promise He made to the fathers by the mouth of His holy prophets, when, at the time appointed by Him, He sent into the world His own only begotten and eternal Son, who took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. He truly assumed a real human nature with all its infirmities, without sin, for He was conceived in the womb of the blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, and not by the act of a man." He not only assumed human nature as to the body, but also a true human soul, in order that he might be a real man. For since the soul was lost as well as the body, it was necessary that he should assume both to save both. Contrary to the heresy of the Anabaptists, who deny that Christ assumed human flesh of his mother, we therefore confess that Christ partook of the flesh and blood of the children. He is a descendant of David, born of David according to his human nature, of the womb of the Virgin Mary born of woman, a branch of David, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, descended from Judah, descended from the Jews according to the flesh, of the seed of Abraham, since the son was concerned with the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. In this way he is in truth our Emmanuel, that is, God, with us. And you see there are all sorts of textual references we're going to look at two of those in particular, um, one scripture reading from Matthew 1, and then we'll focus especially on, on Hebrews chapter 2, the last five verses. But let's do Matthew 1, let's read Matthew 1 together. And when I say together, I mean I'll read it, and you're probably glad for that because Matthew 1 has a lot of names in it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Isaiah, and Isaiah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, 
and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. There's no water here. That's probably because I spilt the cup this morning. Um, it might be helpful if somebody's willing to grab me a cup. Brothers and sisters and boys and girls, do you ever think about the fact that Jesus was a male and Jesus was a Jew? Probably you do. Boys and girls, do you ever think that Jesus had a belly button? Has that thought ever crossed your mind? What about that Jesus had a preference for sleeping either on his side or on his back or on his front? What about the fact that Jesus had to go to the bathroom? Are these silly things to think about? Thank you. Thanks. Or maybe, maybe more than silly, are these inappropriate things to think about? doesn't seem very spiritual to talk about Jesus going to the bathroom. They're actually important things to think about in a way. Because when we think about these things, what it reminds us of is that Jesus is 100% human. That God truly became a man. And that is such an important thing. We say in one of our creeds, the Nicene Creed, that he came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. And he did this for us and for our salvation. And so this is essential that Jesus became man, that God became man, rather. And Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18, shows us why. 
And so I've titled the message, Emmanuel, God with us. And we will see that especially, that he is God with us. First of all, he is one of us. He is one of us. When we think of the incarnation, it really is incredible. It's not just um, an everyday event. It's not even an occasional event. The incarnation is actually a unique event. God becoming man. It's only happened once. You know, so much of worldly religion, as we think of what we perhaps know about other religions, other world religions, even just other spirituality, so much of it is about man trying to ascend to God. It's about often overcoming creatureliness. You know, we are creatures. We have creatureliness. It's about overcoming that and becoming one with the divine. But the Christian faith is actually just the opposite of that. Because we say that our nature as creatures is not at all the problem. That's not something that needs to be overcome. But our sin is the problem. Our fallen nature, not our nature. And so to overcome this problem of sin, the Creator entered into the creation. God descended to be man. And I want you to notice that this happened only because it needed to happen. This was not just an interesting option among a few that God had. I think I'll become man. I think this is the best way to do it. It was the only way to do it. Jesus came as man because he had to come as man to solve the great problem of sin and all the consequences that come with it. The problem of sin. This is again in a series in in my church and I've spent to this point three weeks dwelling on that problem of sin. For you guys, it's just three sentences perhaps. But the problem of sin, you know the rebellion in the beginning where Adam and Eve chose for Satan. They chose to trust Satan's words rather than to trust God's words, to follow Satan's way instead of following God's way. That rebellion that led to ruin. Ruin immediately and ruin eternally. Immediately it led to breakdown of their relationship. It it led to decay. It led to pain. You see that in the words of the curse. And then eternally, of course, it leads to death, the ultimate ruin. That's how Genesis explains it in Genesis 3. Hebrews 2 has its own particular way of explaining the problem of sin. We have in our text this this idea of the power of death, and verse 14 says that belongs to the devil. And so because we chose for the devil in the beginning, we who were in Adam, all of us as humans, we also by our human nature belong to the devil, at least in some sense. He can lay claim to us. And so there's a sense we could say the devil by nature, because of our sin, is our father, and we are his children. That language is not familiar to you. I commend you to John 8. John 8, Jesus speaks to that reality. But Satan is a horrible father if he's a father. And so if we are his children, we're not really treated like children, but we're slaves. That's the kind of language that Hebrews 2 has here, the language of slavery. The devil is a tyrant, brothers and sisters, who enslaves us. And he can do that because we are enslaved to sin. Because you see, what we've done is it's like we've empowered him to be that tyrant. We've empowered him in his tyrannical ways by listening to his lies at the beginning and ever since. And so we live, Hebrews 2 says, in fear of death. And it's from this particularly that we need salvation. So enter Jesus into the picture. Actually, Jesus, that's what he did. He entered into the picture, so to speak. He entered into the world to save us, and he did so as one of us, made of flesh 
and blood. That's the language here again, verse 14. That's what Hebrews 2 stresses. It says, since we are are flesh and blood, the children, that's you and me, since we are flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. It says in verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, a true human, in every respect. Why is that so important? Well, it's because of the principle of justice. You see, humanity was responsible for sin. Satan started it, I know, but we chose sin. We, we actively rebelled. And so we're responsible for our sin. And so humanity must be responsible for salvation then. That's a principle of justice that holds true. The Belgic speaks to this, Article 18, when it says that he not only assumed human nature as to the body, but also a true human soul in order that he might be a real man. For since the soul was lost as well as the body, it was necessary that he should assume both to save both. What was lost needs to save. And so Jesus was a real man, body and soul. You know, we can talk about the Spirit of Christ, and we might think of a passage like Romans 8, if we're familiar with that name given there to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ dwelling in our hearts. But but realize that when we can talk about the Spirit of Jesus, it doesn't always have to be about the Holy Spirit, because Jesus had a spirit himself, a soul, a true human being like us in every respect, not just body, but also his soul, his will, his desires, his passions made up of the same things that you and I are. We're two parts body and soul, so is he. Now, if another creature had sinned, he would have had to become like that creature. That's the point made in verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. If it was angels that he was saving, he would need to be an angel. But that's not the case. He is helping the offspring of Abraham, and so he needs to be the offspring of Abraham. How is he that? Well, he's of the nation of Israel. He's a Jew. It's important that he's a Jew. We started off saying that. More than that, we can say he's of the tribe of Judah. We can narrow it down. Hebrews 7 tells us that explicitly. It is clear, says Hebrews 7, that our Lord descended from Judah. And so we confess in the Belgic, in the first paragraph here, at the beginning, that God fulfilled the promise he made to the fathers by the mouth of his holy prophets. And we can look in the scriptures at all the prophecies, and we see exactly that, prophecies of the one who is coming from the tribe of Judah. For example, you can go to the end of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and you can read Jacob's words of blessing to his sons. And he says there that the scepter will not depart from Judah until he comes to whom it belongs. David is the king of Judah, fair enough. But ultimately, that prophecy is speaking about Jesus. Now, there's a prophecy to David, too. We go a little further in Scripture to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and God says to David, I will establish your son's throne forever. And we think of David's son, Solomon, and a glorious kingdom, prosperous, and, and he had wisdom, and the boundaries extended. But that's not the son. If we know the story, we know that Solomon fails as well. That's not the son that's being spoken of here. So, ultimately, it's Jesus. So he's the offspring of Abraham, he's of the tribe of Judah, and he's the offspring of David. And we go further in our Bibles out of the history books and into the prophets, 
And we can read this prophecy to Hosea, Hosea 3, verse 5. In the latter days, God's children will return to David, their king. Now, really speaking of David, we understand that, but to Jesus. And then we can move into the New Testament. We can see a prophecy to Mary, Mary herself, the Blessed Virgin, Luke 1. Your child, Jesus, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and his kingdom shall never end. And so Jesus, clearly of the offspring of Abraham. Not by the physical seed of Joseph, right? We just read Matthew 1, there's that genealogy, uh, that history of Joseph's line, but it's actually not by the physical seed of Joseph. Jesus was conceived without male participation. That's how our version of the Belgic states it. Here you have, not by the act of a man, not by the act of a man, but we're told that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and so to speak, impregnated her. We don't really know what that looks like. But the point is that he is of the physical seed, actually, of Mary. It's in her womb, with her DNA, that Jesus is born. And Mary is, as Luke records for us in Luke chapter 3, in the line of David as well. And so Jesus, in two ways, in the line of David, truly assuming human flesh from his mother. So it's as the Belgic says, we have that list of of ways to describe him. He shared the very flesh and blood of children. He is fruit of the loins of David according to the flesh. He is born of the seed of David according to the flesh. He is fruit of the womb of the Virgin Mary. He is born of a woman. He is the seed of David. He is a shoot from the root of Jesse. He is the offspring of Judah. He is the seed of Abraham. And what we just established, that's so important because it affects his eligibility to help us, to save us. He is one of us. But it's also important because it affects his ability to empathize with us. You see, Jesus wasn't just one with us in his constitution, that is in body and soul, but also in his experience. Jesus experienced the same things you experience. Really? Are you sure? Well, he was a real Jew, right? He was born just like you and I are, born into and lived in a particular time and place. That's one thing we can say about him. He was set into the context of a particular history and a particular culture. It's true, he reset the course of history and upended all aspects of culture, but but still, he was born into that. But, But more than that, we can say Jesus is a real person. This morning, brothers, uh, John Zitzma uh, prayed in the congregational prayer for those struggling with, uh, I don't remember all the things, but aches and pains, and, and, and that's the one phrase I remember. But there are a whole list of things people struggling with, and he prayed for those things. Jesus experienced those things. Stress, anxiety, those are a couple more. Jesus hungered. Jesus did experience stress. Jesus had aches and pains and scratches and bruises and all of these things. Jesus reacted to music and other forms of art. Jesus reacted to compliments and threats from other people. Jesus had desires, desires for certain outcomes, thoughts about certain ideals. Jesus was a real person, just like you and just like me. He was even tempted Now, it was impossible for Jesus to sin, that's true, and the reason we know that is because of his divine nature, 
The divine nature of Jesus assures us he could not sin. He was unstained from the guilt of original sin and the corruption that follows. That's true. It's the one qualification that's clearly made here in Hebrews. Hebrews 4, in a passage parallel to our text, says in verse 15, one who was in every respect like us, yet without sin. It's the only difference. So it was impossible for him to sin according to his divine nature. But it was possible for him to sin so far as his human nature is concerned. And now these two things are never separated. They're always together, the human nature and the divine. And so we hold to the impossibility of sin. But, but if we were to just consider the human nature alone, if we could do that, it's true to say Jesus had all that is necessary to sin. He had a human will, human desires, human passions. And so he was actually tempted, truly tempted. Not by sinful desires, but if we, if we look at the temptations that he, he experiences at the hands of Satan, we, we see that Satan tempts him with good things. Good desires, but, but good things that would be bad given the circumstances and the mission that Jesus is called to. Things that would have derailed the mission of God altogether. What's an example? Think of the temptation in the desert. Think of that last one when Satan says, here are all the kingdoms of the earth, they're all yours, bow down, worship me. Just imagine what would have happened if Jesus had worshipped Satan in that moment. Sure, he would have had all the kingdoms of the world, and that's a good desire for him, given they all belong to him by right. But he, and then so we, would still have been under the tyranny of the devil, and all hope would be lost. So Jesus was actually tempted. Jesus gets temptation. He knows it. He understands it. He truly has been through it all. He truly is Emmanuel, God with us. Not just one of us, but He's one with us. And isn't that a most comforting thought? Isn't that a glorious thought when we really get down to it? That because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. He's able to help you by empathizing with you in your weakness. Maybe you think nobody can understand you. Jesus can. He's able to help you by showing you tenderness and compassion. He's able to help us by, by grieving with us. He is Emmanuel. And that speaks to what He's done. We often focus on that aspect of it, don't we? The work of the incarnation, what He does, God becoming man, that's how He started. But it's more than that. It speaks to who He is, to His person, to Jesus of Nazareth. And this all comes together then in verse 17. I'd say that's the verse that really ties this all together. Who He is um, makes possible the accomplishment of the work that needs to be done because He alone is able to do it, but He alone is willing to do it as well. So He's one of us and He's one with us, but He is one of us and with us for us. That's the reason He became one of us and is with us, to save us. And we've established this already. That's what we said. The incarnation had to happen because it was the only way we could be saved. But let's get a bit more specific at what that looks like with the use of verse 17. He was made uh, like his brothers, like one of us in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He's merciful. 
That is to say, He knows what it's like to be us, what we just said. He understands our weakness. He understands our temptation. But He's also, in addition to merciful, faithful. Because unlike us, He did not sin. But He completely entrusted Himself to the Father. So He has His own will as a true man, but that will is totally, completely, 100% aligned to the will of the Father in every respect, fully lived out God's will for His life. So as we think of Him as a human, we touched on that this morning, early in the service. He loved the Lord God with all that is within Him, and He loved His neighbor as Himself. Full-hearted, full-souled obedience, faithful, merciful, faithful, also a high priest, but not just any high priest, a special kind of high priest. I believe we have Hebrews 7, and we can put that on the screen. I draw your attention there. Hebrews 7, verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, every other high priest, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. See, that's what other high priests had to do. They're human. They're sinners. So they had to offer up this, this sacrifice first for their own sins, and then they could offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. But Jesus is different. He's holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. He's, he's separated from sinners, and He's exalted above the heavens. And in this really is the beauty of the incarnation, that Jesus is so high above us, so transcendent, so far superior to us, but He willingly came down to our level to associate with us to identify it with us. And it's a complete identification and yet at the same time remaining separate from us in the one area it was necessary for him to be separate, sin. And so he took care of sin once for all when he offered himself. And how did he do that? Back to Hebrews 2. How did this merciful and faithful high priest do this? He made propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation. It's an important word to understand. It gets used several times in Scripture, often in key texts. If you were to go online and, and look for a definition of propitiation, as I did, propitiation, it says there, is a conciliatory offering or an act of appeasement. That's all right as far as that goes because it's true that reconciliation comes about through Jesus' work, so it is a conciliatory offering. And even that word appeasement that's okay, because God's wrath is satisfied through Jesus' work, and there's a sense in which you could say that His wrath is appeased. But it has the, I only say it's okay because it has the potential to confuse us about who God is. Because sometimes the way we use that word appeasement, we appease somebody who's all hot around the collar, who's about to burst out in, in, in anger at us, and they need to be pacified. And that's not really what we want to think of when it comes to God. It's not that God is all hot around the collar and Jesus pacifies him by suffering. Oh good, he suffered. I won't be happy until someone else is unhappy kind of idea. That's not who God is. That's not how God is offended in some personal, subjective, emotional kind of way. But God's wrath needs to be satisfied in the sense that his justice is satisfied. I hope you can see that difference speaks to the character of God. So Romans 3 says, verse 25, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received 
by faith. And he did this to show his righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And it's so important that God was just and the justifier. And it all falls apart if he's not both of those things. And he can only be both of those things in Jesus. And so on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. It's amazing, isn't it? The Christ who's separate from sin, Jesus identifying with us in every way apart from sin. He has no sin, he knew no sin, and yet he became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What an incredible exchange. The mighty maker dying on a tree that he created for the people who messed everything up their own fault, fixing their problem and doing so much more for them. What compassion he showed, what grace he shows, what love beyond compare in our God. So God's wrath was satisfied. Jesus just didn't satisfy that wrath, though he did more. He delivered us. Jesus won a great victory when he was on the cross. He conquered Satan, the Satan that's talked about in our text. This great deceiver, this great liar, this this great destroyer, this great tyrant, he was overcome. We can say that he's destroyed already. That's still playing itself out. But for all intents and purposes, we can say he's done. Jesus has conquered him. And with that, Jesus also conquered death. Because you see, the power of death belongs to the devil, says Hebrews 2. But in Jesus' resurrection, we see the death of death. We see life. We see that life wins. And that life is in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so we need to belong to Jesus. Right? We said earlier, because that we chose for the devil, there's a sense in which we belong to him, that that tyrant can lay claim on us. But through faith in Jesus and what he has done, our identity changes. Our belonging, our sense of belonging changes. We can say we experience an identity conversion. And so we belong to him now. Body and soul, life and death, Jesus, our faithful Savior, with God as our Father. And we have His guarantee that we will live forever. And it always comes back to this, doesn't it, as we begin to close. The promise of eternal life always comes back to the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. At least I find as I preach, it always comes back to that. Why is that? Well, because this is the pinnacle of our faith, brothers and sisters. This is our great hope. Life with Jesus forever in glory. And for this, the humanity of Jesus is essential. He didn't just look like it, but he actually was real man, true man. God becoming man to overcome the estrangement between God and man because of sin. Just as we were lost in body and soul, he came in body and soul to redeem both body and soul, setting us free from the power of the devil. Emmanuel, God with us, so that we could be with him forever. And one more thing, I've been saying that Jesus was a man, and he had a body and a soul, but he still does. And that's important too. That's important for the assurance of this great promise that we've just spoken of. Since his body and soul have been raised, he is the first fruits of a glorious harvest that is coming. We can have confidence that we will be raised as well. He came down so that we could go up. He identified 
with us in our suffering before coming into his glory so that if we identify with him in his suffering, we will enter into that glory as well. And so praise God for this glorious, wonderful truth. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for the incarnation, that you gave your one and only Son, that you did not spare him, your beloved Son who you were well pleased with. You spared him, or or you, you gave him up for us all. And since you did not spare him, we are confident that you will give us all things in him. Jesus, we thank you that you submitted to this good plan of the Father, that you agreed to be sent to fulfill the mission, to accomplish the work that needed to be done. And Spirit, we thank you that you have been working throughout all of this, the empowering Jesus in his ministry and applying that work to us and guiding us from now all the way through glory. And so we behold the mystery of the incarnation and we behold it with praise. May we praise you. May all of this lead us to praise you with our lips and to praise you with our lives. Hear us in Jesus' name. Amen.